This morning we're going to conclude the series that we've talked about the last uh, few times that I've spoken on getting to know Jesus. And this uh, morning's conclusion is going to be all about the resurrection. For Jesus' conclusion here on earth is that though we left off last time at his death, and the passage that Jonathan read there uh, at the end of communion was the last passage that we read in our last sermon, how that that Roman centurion looked up and after seeing the darkness and the earthquakes and all the things that happened at the death of Jesus, that he said, truly, this was the Son of God. And that's where we left off in our last study, but that's not the end of Jesus' story. And we're so glad that that's not the end of his story because had that been the end... Well, Jesus would have been a fantastic character, a great guy who taught a lot of good things, did a lot of good things for people, but he would have just been another person that was martyred for a cause. But that's not the end of Jesus' story. In fact, three days later, we recognize that Jesus rose from the grave, and we're going to talk about him reigning today as king uh, this morning in this lesson. So we pick up the story in Luke chapter 23, just after the death of Jesus. Jesus' body is still hanging there on the cross. And in verse 50, it says, Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council and he was a good man and just and a just and the same had not consented to the council and the deed of them he was he was of Arimathea a city of the Jews who also himself waited for the kingdom of God this man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus and he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone wherein never man before was laid now Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin council who was not present when they did the shady trial for Jesus and, and convicted him and said they were going to bring him before Pilate and ask for him to be crucified, if you recall, we talked about how the fact, the fact that they got those members of the council together kind of shadily in the middle of the night uh, to do that, and they left off men like Joseph who wouldn't have been for that. And the scripture tells us he had not consented to the council and the deed of the others who had said to put Jesus to death. But Joseph of Arimathea was a man who was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he was a believer in Christ. And so he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus. And he takes the body of Jesus and he places him in that tomb, in that sepulcher uh, that would eventually be sealed with a stone. So that's how Jesus' body ends up in the tomb. Now the Jews are worried here because if you recall the Jews they've been against Jesus. They, they were threatened by Jesus. They knew that if Jesus really was the Messiah well suddenly their whole religion and their leadership in the Jewish religion was suddenly threatened and it meant nothing anymore. So they were threatened by his power. They were threatened by his influence over the people. Well now they knew that if Jesus were to come forth from the grave though they didn't believe that he would do that but if it was presented in some way or falsified in some way that Jesus had come forth from the grave, well, that would just give more fuel to the fire that Jesus really was the Messiah. So the Jews go before Pilate and they make a request. They said, command therefore that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, ye have a watch. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now what they literally would have done was they would have gone to that tomb. The only opening there would have been the hole that was covered by the stone. That stone would have been huge. It would have weighed a, a, a lot. They would have rolled the stone and then they would have sealed it with some sort of pitch. Uh, literally around the edges of the stone so that it would be evident if there was any breakage or if that stone had been moved. And so they literally would have sealed it and then they set a Roman watch, that's simply a, a squadron of Roman soldiers there that were left at the entrance of the tomb to guard it and to make sure that what the Jews thought might happen, that his disciples would come and steal his body, 
to make sure that that didn't happen. So here we've got a tomb with a huge stone that's sealed so that nothing can get in or out with Roman soldiers right there at the entrance of the tomb guarding it to make sure that nothing takes place. And they said until the third day because they knew what Jesus had said, they knew what he had taught. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it back up. And so they knew that and so they wanted those Roman soldiers there to make sure that nothing, nothing happened to the body. But what happens in Matthew 28 verse one? It says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here for he is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Now at some point, and when you look at all the gospels and you try to piece together exactly the chronology of what happened, it's difficult to know for sure exactly the sequence of events. It seems here that the women have come to the tomb while the stone was still sealed. And then in their presence, the angel of the Lord descends or rolls the stone away. But at this point, they didn't see Jesus. And we're going to read about them seeing, or Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus in just a moment. But at this point, they didn't see Jesus. But the angel there is talking to them and saying, he's not here, he's risen. So whether or not the earthquake and the rolling of the stone happened in the presence of those ladies, or it happened just previous to them arriving, uh, we don't know exactly for sure. But in any event, the women show up. The stone is rolled away. Jesus is gone. The angel speaks to them and says, come look at where the Lord was laying. He's gone. He's not here. He's been raised from the grave just like he said that he would. Now in Mark chapter 16 and verse 9, we see uh, an account of Jesus coming before Mary Magdalene. Now Mary Magdalene was one of the women that came to the tomb in the first place. It says, now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had, had been seen of her, believed not. So we've got both Marys at the tomb. The angel speaks to them, says he's not here, he's risen, the stone's been rolled away. By the way, it says the keepers, right? The Roman soldiers that were there, they became as dead men. Essentially, they passed out, out of fear for what they, what they were seeing with the angel and the stone rolling away and all that. So they're passed out uh, like dead men. And so then Jesus is gone. And at some point there in the sequence, he appears to Mary Magdalene by herself and not the other Mary. And so Mary Magdalene gets to see Jesus first and he goes and he, he uh, shows himself to her. She runs back to all the other disciples and they don't believe her that Jesus really was raised from the grave. Okay, and that we recognize the human side of things that would be a difficult thing to believe. But at the same time, you look at that and you go, you spent three years with Jesus hearing Jesus say he would do this, seeing all the miraculous things that he did and still you're not believing that he's risen from the grave. But I suppose we can't place much blame on them. We may have done the same thing if we were in their shoes. Uh, in verse 12, it says, After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. What two of them those were, not sure. Uh, but they went and told it unto the residue to the rest of them. Neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So we've got multiple people that Jesus is appearing to. They're running back to the rest of the disciples saying, we saw Jesus, he's alive. And the rest of them are going, eh, we don't believe you. 
that, no, that couldn't really happen. And so Jesus then appears to the 11 and he upbraids them. He gets onto them basically. How can you not believe these people that are telling you I'm alive? I told you that I would be alive. I told you I'd come back from the grave. And so he gets onto them a little bit. Now, the sequence of events here as well is a little bit uh, hard to nail down. It says he appeared to the 11. That would be everybody but Judas who had hanged himself, right? So that would include Thomas. So in this meeting that Mark is referencing, Thomas is included here. But we know from John that another meeting takes place prior to Thomas being there with 10, with the other 10 disciples. In John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. And so we see Jesus appearing to them, but verse 24 says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. So at some point, Jesus, on that first day of the week, after he's appeared to Mary, he's appeared to a couple others, he appears to the ten minus Thomas, and they're glad and happy to see the Lord, but Thomas isn't there. Thomas doubts. He says, I'll not believe unless I see Jesus myself, unless I can stick my fingers in the, in the holes in his hands and in his side. He said, I'm not going to believe that he's alive. Well, then Jesus will later appear after eight days with all of them. So whether or not this meeting was the meeting that Mark was referencing... Not sure, but there's several times where Jesus appears to the disciples. And John 20, verse 26 says, After eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And so at this point, you've got all of the disciples, all 11 of them that are remaining minus Judas, who have seen Jesus, who believe and are thrilled to death now that they know that Jesus has been raised from the grave. And it is all true what Mary was saying, what the others that Jesus had appeared to were saying, and that Jesus truly is alive. Now, word of this begins to spread, right? You've got disciples, you've got Christians, people, followers of Christ now that are saying, Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the grave. Well, this presents a huge problem for the Jews. Exactly what they were fearing might happen, that the body would disappear, though they didn't believe it would really be through resurrection. But exactly what they feared took place. And so now they're in cover-up mode, and the Jews are going to try to cover up the fact that Jesus has risen from the grave. In Matthew 28, verse 11, it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and they did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So the Jews go into major cover-up mode, and what they do is they go to those Roman soldiers, those very soldiers who were there at the tomb who were supposed to be guarding it. And even though those soldiers had seen the angel of the Lord descend, had seen an earthquake take place, and had seen that stone roll away, and they, they passed out like dead men there. But now the Jews come to them and say, they say, look, we will give you a lot of money, a lot of money, if you say that his disciples came and stole his body. We know what you saw. We know what you're saying you saw. Don't ever tell another soul that. 
we're going to pay you off and make sure that you say that his disciples stole the body. And he says, if it gets, gets back to the governor, you're not going to get in trouble. We're going to cover you. We'll deal with him. You're going to be fine. Just take this money. Say the disciples stole his body. So they did. And so that was what was commonly reported among the Jews was that the Christians came and stole the body of Jesus and it was all falsified and his resurrection wasn't real. But I want to remind you of some things. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing there to the church at Corinth and he's reminding them of the many people who saw Jesus resurrected and reminding them of the many eyewitnesses that exist. He says that he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain under this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. Now, eyewitness testimony is important. The fact that Jesus was seen by over 500 people at once is important. And we've talked in a previous sermon about some of the evidences of resurrection. And so the intent of this sermon is not to get deep into that. But I do want to remind you of a couple of things. One, motive. The Jews were saying that the disciples of Christ came and stole his body. But what was their motive? In fact, what we see prior to them recognizing that Jesus was raised from the grave was we see a group of followers of Christ who were dejected, who were depressed, who were sad who didn't believe that Jesus really was raised from the grave. And we also see that once they began preaching a resurrected Jesus, they all got persecuted and killed, save John. So what was their motive for falsifying it? What was their motive for stealing the body and then telling this story about Jesus being resurrected that got them all killed? Why would they do that? And it just doesn't make logical sense. If Jesus really hadn't been raised, if they really weren't 100% sure that this was true and real, why would they all have died for it? And not one of them said, just kidding, we faked it, we stole his body, and that didn't happen. And history doesn't record that happening. In fact, they had no motive to steal the body. It was much better for them to just, if Jesus wasn't really the son of God, to just let him lie and just go back about their business. And they would have saved their lives for that. But they were willing to tell the story of Jesus' resurrection because they knew with 100% certainty that it was true. Second thing I'll remind you of is with this, this many witnesses, that, that's impossible for 500 people to think that they saw somebody all at the same time or to hallucinate that Jesus really was, was raised from the grave all at the same time. It's impossible. And you know what Paul says here? He says, the greater part remain under this present, but some are falling asleep. He says, look, if you don't believe me that Jesus is raised from the grave, go talk to the hundreds of people that are still alive that all saw him. Some of them have fallen asleep, but the greater part, the majority of them, they're still alive today. You don't believe me? Go talk to them. And what that tells me is Paul was not only confident in his own knowledge, but in the fact that there were hundreds of other people that would back up the fact that Jesus really was raised from the grave. And that can be used as assurance for us that this was not falsified information. His resurrection wasn't faked. All of the evidence, and when you start studying the empty tomb and the evidence, nobody denies the tomb is empty. The fact that Christianity started in Jerusalem, in the very place that Jesus was killed and that his body was laid in that tomb. The fact that it flourished in that very city, if his body had still been there, or if he had not raised from the grave, all the Jews and the Romans would have had to do was say, wrong he's right there but they couldn't because he was gone and somehow his body was taken or stolen with a roman squadron of soldiers standing right there in a sealed stone i think the only explanation that's logical here is that jesus really did raise from the grave that his disciples really did see him thus assuring them that no matter what they went through for the rest of their life and the rest of leading up to their death was worth it because they were headed for heaven 
And I want you to know his resurrection happened. And it's important for you and for me to know and to believe and to be sure that Jesus really did raise from the grave. Because our salvation and our eternal life is dependent upon this. It's dependent upon the fact that Jesus truly was resurrected. Paul says this in verse 17. He says, If Christ be not raised, then your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And that's the key to why his resurrection is so important. Because again, if Jesus had done the wonderful things that he did, performed the miracles, taught the things that he taught, and died a martyr's death on the cross, and that was the end of his story, well, he would have been a great guy that died for a cause he believed in. But the fact that he was raised from the grave put him in a different category from any other person that has ever lived, from anybody else that ever claimed to be deity. And Jesus proved with his resurrection that he truly was the Son of God. And not only that, but he proved that those of us that followed him could follow in his resurrection both spiritually and physically. You see, Romans 6 talks about the fact that as Jesus raised up in newness of life, so we can raise in newness of life spiritually when we obey the gospel and baptism. But we also know that at the end of our life, just as Jesus was physically raised from the grave, that there will come a time when we, even if we are dead and gone and buried, that we too will rise from that grave and that we will live in eternity with him in heaven. His resurrection is that important because it guarantees that the rest of us can do it too. If Jesus really did have the power, if he really was the Son of God to be able to raise from the grave, then you and I should have no doubt that he can raise us too. And that's why his resurrection is important for you and for me. And so Jesus, after he is resurrected from the grave, he spends about 40 days with his disciples. And he's teaching them and he's talking to them about the kingdom of God. Acts 1 verse 3 says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I would have loved, I would have loved to be there in the three-year ministry, but I would have loved to be there for those 40 days. I mean, now they've seen everything happen. They've seen Jesus actually come forth from the grave. Now they know with 100% certainty, he is the son of God. We're gonna live and we're gonna die for him. And those 40 days, Jesus talked to them about things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And what an amazing set of messages I'm sure that would have been to hear. But he prepares the apostles for what is about to take place. And he gives them some specific instructions in verse eight. He says, but ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And so after 40 days of talking to the apostles about things pertaining to the kingdom of God, he gives them the, the specific instructions to go to Jerusalem and to wait that they would receive power there. And then he ascends up into the heavens. And that's the last time that Jesus physically was seen here on earth. And he ascends back up to God. What do the apostles do? Well, they do exactly what Jesus says. Because Jesus is reigning as king today. And I want you to know that. He was resurrected from the grave and he may have physically ascended back up to God, but he today is reigning on a throne. And he is king of a kingdom, his kingdom that eternal kingdom that's been prophesied of multiple times throughout the Old Testament in places like Daniel 2 and verse 44. And Jesus claims this headship and he claims this kingship. In Matthew 28 verse 18, before he ascended, he told the disciples this. Jesus came and spake to them saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 
through Jesus' actions on the cross and through raising from the grave, Satan was crushed. He was defeated at the cross. Jesus became king of the eternal kingdom that had been prophesied for years and years and years before. And Jesus comes before his ascension and he tells them, all power under heaven and on earth, it's mine. I am now king. I am now ruler of that eternal kingdom. And we remember what Jesus taught about his kingdom. He called it in Matthew chapter 16, his church. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that statement that Peter made, upon that rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus used kingdom of heaven and church there interchangeably. The church simply means the called out. It simply means the congregation of people that follow him. It simply means a group of people. And what Jesus is reigning over today is not a geographical location. It's not a physical kingdom on this earth. Jesus ascended back up into the clouds. What he is reigning over today is men and women who are following him. It is the hearts of men and women of those that have given their lives to him and obeyed his gospel. We are a part of his kingdom, his church, his congregation, his called out. And he is reigning as Lord over us today. Luke chapter 17, Jesus put it this way in verse 20, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus said the kingdom is not going to be something that you see physically. The kingdom of God is here. And it's in the hearts of men and women who have given their lives over to him. Jesus died on that cross and was raised from that grave to become king over the eternal kingdom so that you and I could be a part of that kingdom and then be saved for eternity with him. His kingdom, his church is so important. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22, it says, And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What is Jesus doing today? This whole series has been about getting to know Jesus. And we looked at the life of Christ and all the things that he did here on earth. But that's not the end of the story either. Jesus today is active. Jesus today is king. He is Lord. He is head of the church. Over that body, that congregation, those called out, those that are a part of his kingdom, not the geographical kingdom, not something you can say low here, low there, but the kingdom that exists in the hearts of men and women. Jesus is reigning today. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and he is Lord over the church. And if you want to be a part of Jesus' kingdom, you've got to be a part of his church, his followers. You've got to do those things that Jesus has instructed you to do. And then if you're a part of his kingdom and his church then you can have benefit to the same power that raised Jesus from the grave. That same power that can forgive you of your sins. That same power that can raise you from the grave. One day at the end of time. In John chapter 14, Jesus made a promise. While he today is reigning and he is Lord of the church and he is king of the heavenly and eternal kingdom, he has also promised that he will come back. That there will come a time when our time here on earth is over. Whether we die first or we are still alive, at some point, all of this goes away. Jesus said, I'm coming back for those who are mine, for those who are a part of my congregation, of my kingdom, of my church. He said in John 14 and verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus is coming back. And that either will fill you with one of two emotions probably, either with fear to know that Jesus is coming back. And if we're not a part of his kingdom, we're not a part of his church, we're not one of his followers, we're not doing those things that he's asked us to do, then it ought to put fear in our heart to know that he's coming back. 
But if you are a part of his kingdom, if you are a part of his church, if you are one of his followers, if the kingdom of God is within you, then that should fill you with joy and with anticipation to know that Jesus is coming back one day and whether we've died first or we're still alive doesn't really matter. We're going to go join him in heaven for eternity and there has been a place that's been prepared for you and for me. And I want that place. I want to get there one day and I want you to get there one day. Not only happens through Jesus, that's what the entire story of Jesus is about. It's about him providing a way for us to live eternally with him. You see, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, we see sin. And we see that sin separates us from God. And we know that all of us have sinned. All of us have committed those wrongs. And all of us, therefore, have been separated from God. The entire story of Jesus is to bring that reconciliation between us and God. It's why God sent him in the first place. It's why he was born to be a savior. It's why he grew up and did not allow Satan to win when he tempted him in the desert. It's why Jesus picked those disciples and worked for three years teaching them and doing miracles and telling these parables and doing all of this teaching. It's why Jesus was willing to allow the Romans to take him in the garden and the Jews to put on a sham trial and the Romans to nail him on on that cross and kill him. It's why Jesus allowed all of that to happen and why he was raised from the grave three days later, why he taught them for another 40 days and why he ascended back up in the cloud reigning as king today. All of it was to allow you and allow me to have eternal life. And if we don't follow him, if we don't accept him, if we don't accept the amazing gift that's been given to us, we don't get to inherit that eternal life. We don't get to enjoy that place that's been prepared. We don't get to look with joy and anticipation towards that day when Jesus returns. If we're not living for him, if we're not a member of his kingdom, we're not a member of his church, we ought to look at that day with fear because there's another side to this coin. Though eternal life and the blessings of eternal life are there for those who are followers of Christ, there's gonna come a time for those that aren't when it's fear that strikes you. What happens when we die and those of us who are alive? What happens at the end of time when Jesus comes back? In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13, it says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of God, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep or precede them that are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So I want to speak to you this morning to those of you who are a part of that kingdom and a part of that church. What's going to happen on that day when all of this goes away, when eternity is all that remains, is that Jesus is going to descend from heaven with his angels. There's going to be trumpets. There was going to be shouting. We're going to know immediately at that moment when Jesus is returning. Those that are dead in Christ, they'll rise first. Those that are dead and gone who are faithful Christians, they're going to raise from the grave just as Jesus raised from the grave. And they're going to go meet Jesus. And then those of us that are alive and remain, if we're here and we're alive when the trump sounds and when Jesus begins to descend, we're going to see those graves open. We're going to see the dead in Christ rise and then we too are going to rise and meet him in the clouds. And then we're going to inherit that eternal life and that place that Jesus has prepared for us. 
If we're not a member of that kingdom, though, there's another story. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 says, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And I want you to know this morning, if you're not a part of his church, you're not a part of that kingdom, you're not a follower of Christ, the kingdom of God is not within you this morning, then this ought to strike fear within you. Because at the same time, when Jesus comes in the clouds with his angels and the trumps, the trumpets are blaring and the shouting is, and, and those that are Christians are rejoicing and the dead in Christ are rising and then they're rising to meet him in the air at the same time, those that aren't Christians will be destroyed. Flaming fire, Jesus will take vengeance upon them. And we know it's those that know not God and that have obeyed not the gospel of Jesus Christ that have not obeyed the good news, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, that have not given themselves over to him in obedience to that gospel, they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. You see, on that day, all of us are going to be taken. We're going to face a judgment. And that judgment is going to be based upon the choices that we made here. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. But you see, once we get to the judgment, it's too late. There's no turning around. There's no changing our mind. There's no kneeling before him at that point and saying, I pledge myself to you. At that point, when we're at the judgment, it's done. You see, the judgment really is a sentencing. It's not really an evaluation to say, you know, what do you want? What decisions are you going to make? What cho- where do you want to go? No, that's not going to happen. The judgment is a sentencing based upon the decisions that we have made while we were here, while we were alive. And so all of us are going to be caught up. All of us are going to go and we're going to face that judgment. If we're not a part of his kingdom and not a part of his church, then we face fire and eternal destruction. If we are a Christian and we are a member of his church and his kingdom, then we face a place in heaven for eternity. And there's no fear. We don't have to approach judgment with fear, wondering where it is that we're going. If we're a child of his, if we've obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're living faithfully every day for him. Though we recognize we sin, we recognize we're not perfect, that's the reason Jesus died, was that his perfection could take away our imperfection. We can have confidence. We can have boldness. Approaching the throne of judgment, knowing that that sentencing will go something like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Inherit the eternal life that's been prepared for you. But if we're not, and we've not obeyed the gospel, and we've not given ourselves to Jesus, we can't have that boldness, and we can't have that confidence. And that judgment will be a place of fear, a place of regret, and a place where it's too late. And we'll go on into our eternal destruction. And I beg you, I implore you not to make that decision. Don't spit upon the greatest gift that's ever been given to mankind. Jesus came. The entire purpose for him to come was to save you. Was to give you a place in heaven for eternity. Don't turn your back on him. Don't reject him. Reach out and accept that gift. Take it. It's offered freely to you. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says it's appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. 
And on that day, those that are in his kingdom and in his church will be saved. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. You see, we can become a member of his kingdom while we're here on earth. And that's how we know that we're saved. That's how we can be bold approaching the throne of judgment is because we know that we're a part of his kingdom and his church. You see, his kingdom is what's going to last for eternity. His kingdom is what's going to be given eternal life. The members of his church are those that are going to live forever. So if you want to live forever, it's about being a member of his church. It's about being a member of his kingdom because that's who's going to inherit eternal life. So the question becomes, how do you do that? How do you become a member of his kingdom? We talked about the fact that if you're not a part of his kingdom or his church, then there ought to be fear and trepidation when you think about Jesus returning. But if you are, then you can have boldness and confidence and joy. The same boldness and confidence and joy that those 3,000 souls in Acts chapter 2 received when they obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remember 2 Thessalonians, Paul said, those that had not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ would be subject to that flaming fire, that vengeance, that eternal destruction. But those that have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ are removed from that threat of punishment and are placed into the kingdom, the church, reserved for eternal life. How do we do that? In Acts chapter 2, it shows us the way. Peter is preaching there, and in verse 36, he concludes his sermon by saying, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Remember we talked about that, that Jesus is reigning today. He is Lord. He is King. Peter says, Jesus is Lord today. He is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King. And in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were convicted. They believed that Jesus had come to save them. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. You may be here this morning. Do you believe that Jesus came to save you? We've talked in this series about all the things that Jesus did, and it all comes down to this. Everything that he did was to save you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Do you believe the resurrection puts a firm stamp on that? That he's different from anybody else, any other person ever claiming deity. Jesus truly is the Son of God. He is reigning today. His whole purpose is to save you. And all you need to do is the same thing that these people in Acts chapter 2 did when they asked that question, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now why did Peter not say you need to believe on Jesus? Because they believed. They said, what do we need to do? We're ready. We believe in him. If you believe in him, if you believe in Jesus today, then that's not the instruction to you. The instruction to you is first to repent. Repent means to change. It means you can't keep living the same way that you've been living. You can't keep living selfishly for yourself and for sin, but you've got to turn your whole life over to Jesus. And if you're willing to do that, then you need to be baptized. Because in baptism, you meet the blood of Christ and your sins are washed away. His perfection takes over your imperfection. You are becoming a part of that kingdom, that church. You are placed into his kingdom that is reserved for eternal life. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the remission, remission to remit, to forgive. Your sins will go away. Those imperfections, those things that separated you from God, they're no more. And suddenly the blood of Christ is covering you. You are a part of his church, a part of his kingdom. And you can look at eternal life in the day when Jesus comes back with joy, anticipation, and boldness to know that I've been given eternal life. This is the secret. This is not a secret. This is what is proclaimed boldly to all of us. 
the way that we can accept the greatest gift that's ever been given to mankind. Have you accepted it? Have you accepted it? It's not a hard thing to do. It's not a hard set of instructions that's complicated that we can't understand. Give your life to Him. Stop living for self. Start living for Him. Be baptized. Not because there's anything special about this water, but because it's in that act of submission to God. Your faith in Him that God performs that operation on you, forgiving you of your sins. You're remitted of that sin. And you're placed into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And if you're in that kingdom today, thank God for the great gift of Jesus. Thank Jesus for what he was willing to do. And if you're not a part of his kingdom today, please make the choice. Don't wait. It's a free gift. It's offered to you. He's holding it out, just asking for you to take it. Step up and take it. Let him save you. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, They that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. What were they added to? Verse 47 says, The Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. That church that is his kingdom, that is simply his congregation, his people that follow after him.